from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. It is great to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time. We are so glad you're here. Uh, thank you especially to Allison for sharing her testimony. I always find a testimony so encouraging. We're going to have a number of testimonies leading up to Easter and perhaps beyond this year. But I always find it encouraging when, when somebody who's mature, a, a leader, is still in process and, and specifically is, is still trying to, to feel loved by God. It's, it's not hard for me to, to imagine and, and to believe that God loves Allison or that God loves any other person here. And yet for me, I struggle to believe that God loves me. And so I don't know if you resonate with that, but in, in my morning Psalms today, I read Psalm 147, which says, the Lord delights in those who fear him and all who trust in his unfailing love. And for me, my default mode is, is to believe that God loves us in proportion to our, our goodness and our obedience. So the better that I do, the more God loves me. And so when I'm not doing very well, I assume that I must not be as loved as I was previously. And yet the Psalms and the New Testament make this so clear that God's love for his children it's not rooted in our goodness. It's rooted in the goodness of God. It doesn't rise and fall with our behavior, but it, it doesn't rise and fall at all because it's rooted in who God is. He is love. It's rooted in his character. And so all of this is to be, to be kept in mind when we turn to God's law. God's commandments aren't to, to see if we can earn our way into the love of God. They're not to see who fits in the family of God, but rather they're his instructions for those who are already loved by God. For those who are already in the family of God, these are his instructions. God's law is a cohesive, compelling way of life for his 
children. And so we looked at the first four laws, the worship commandments, one through four, last week. And this week, we're looking at the community commandments, five through ten, which are all about valuing others above yourself, all about loving others more than you love your own life. And as we've said, this is a pathway to personal human flourishing, individual flourishing as well as community flourishing. It's a pathway that's embodied and fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So we're going to look at this community dynamic of the law in three ways. What the law means today, how it's fulfilled in love, and then its vision for community flourishing. So what it means today, how it's fulfilled in love, and then its vision for community flourishing. Now, we'll take a look at these six laws and what they mean for us today, as well as how they're supported and upheld or deepened and personalized in the New Testament. The fifth law is verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, for us as as American society, we are highly individualistic and our culture, the individual, is, is the primary unit of society. And yet in the Hebrew culture, and, and as God is, is forming a new type of society, he's encouraging us not to be so individualistic, but rather to, to hold the family and the community at the heart of society. And Paul says in Ephesians 6 that this is part of a larger framework of love and honor and gentleness in the family unit. There he calls parents to raise their children with care, patience, and loving instruction Children are to follow their parents' lead until they're old enough to internalize the law, to understand what it's for, and to follow it in their own way. Now, what about us as as adults? How do we relate to our parents with honor? Well, we do so by, by caring for them, by thanking them, by honoring them publicly and privately. And for some of you that have difficult or even abusive parents where you may need to create a little bit of distance between you and them, you still honor them at that distance. You still pray for them. You still speak highly of them. And so law number five is about honoring our parents, honoring our father and mother. Law number six is pretty straightforward. It says, you shall not murder. Now, if you think about this, murder, of course, would undermine any kind of society. It would undermine the justice. It would undermine the the community dynamic itself. If anybody could just go and kill one another, which was what the Israelites were used to in Egypt. Egypt was a place where murder could take place, especially the, the wealthy or those who had power could take the lives of those who had, you know, no power if they were slaves or whatever condition they were in. And yet God is saying, for my new society, murder is not going to take place here because murder always reflects an individual putting themselves in the place of God, deciding who gets to live and who doesn't. But on an even a deeper level, Jesus says that in Matthew 5, that anybody who simply harbors anger in their heart towards another person has done the, the very same thing as murdering them in their own heart. And they're just as liable to judgment Instead, Jesus is calling us within the spiritual community to engage in direct conversation with each other, not gossip, to forgive one another, not become bitter, to restore one another and not to give up on each other. And so murder in the same way is part of this larger framework of teaching on ethics. Now, the seventh law is you shall not commit adultery. 
Adultery, like murder, was widely accepted in Egypt and in the ancient world. At least for men, it was acceptable to have multiple wives or mistresses or partners without any consequence. And yet women could only be faithful to their husbands. Now, this represents a horribly low view of the human body, of personal holiness, of love for one another. It undermines the community's health and purity. The scriptures show us that sex is God's good gift to one husband and one wife for all time. Yet this is well Jesus deepens in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the same way, lusting after another person is to objectify or dehumanize them, turn them into an object in the same way that adultery does. So Jesus is always driving at the heart of the law. Not merely the the external behavior, but the heart that is driving that behavior. Now, law number eight is you shall not steal. And this can be extended to not taking advantage of others, whether it's in a, a business deal, whether it's, it's maybe stealing honor that's due to another person and you claim it for yourself. But rather, Jesus says our money and our possessions especially, are, they belong to God. And they're to be used for the good of the community. We'll come back to that in a moment. But law number nine is you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, this is about falsehood in our speech. And again, it fits within a larger category of of being honest people, of living with a radical honesty. False testimony can include telling half-truths or making slightly misleading statements to protect ourselves or promote ourselves. It could be exaggerating on on a work project or sharing half the truth when somebody's asking us about our actions. Now, this is an important law for us in a success-driven and an image-obsessed culture where we're always trying to promote the best side of ourselves. That's what social media is for, is to kind of present one aspect of our life in the most positive light possible. It's not only that, but it can be a place where we literally bear false witness. We say, this is my entire life, and yet it's just one tiny little moment where we look as good as possible. Now, law number 10 is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, this brings us full circle because the first law is about worship. It's about worshiping the Lord with all of our soul, with all of our heart, with all of our strength. And the old reformer, Martin Luther, said that anytime we break laws two through ten, it's because we first broken law number one. We, when we have not loved God with every fiber of our being, then it leads us to break one of the other laws. And coveting or, or envy, it brings us full circle because it's about the things our hearts desire, the things that we treasure most. And if we are not rooted in worship of God, If we are not secure in the love that God has for us, we will live for external and temporary things. One of my favorite writers, Richard Foster, says, when we lack a divine center from which to live, we will develop an insane attachment to things. Bigger house, newer car, younger spouse. As the philosopher Kay West put it, things we buy to cover up what's inside. And so when we take all of these things together, 
God is not merely giving us rules of do's and don'ts, but he's giving us a vision for a better life. He's giving us instructions for our new community that will uphold us on a personal and on a social level. He's compelling us with an entirely better vision for life. He's showing us life as it should be. He's showing us what's better. Now, as I said, God is calling Israel to leave behind their old ways of life. In Egypt, Pharaoh would freely murder children and slaves, but the sixth law prioritizes love and patience and forgiveness. In Egypt, adultery was common and idolized, but the seventh law prioritizes fidelity, honesty. It protects intimacy. In Egypt, the rich and powerful could take from the poor and needy, but the eighth law protects the vulnerable from theft and mistreatment. We could do this for all 10. But the point is that God is telling his people to leave behind the old way of life. Leave behind what you have known in Egypt, the individualistic, the self-promoting, the misleading, greedy, lustful, overworking way of life. He's saying, leave all of that behind. Embrace this new way of life, others-centered, radically honest, patient, generous, honoring, content. And so the last commandment brings it full circle because it starts with worship, which is about adoring God, and then it ends with contentment, being satisfied in God and being satisfied with what he's given us in life. And so this is what the law means for us today, but the next thing is so important. It's how the law is fulfilled in love. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he fulfills the law in in two distinct ways. First, by keeping the law in its entirety. And then second, by actually embodying what the law promotes. Actually embodying the love that's at the heart of all of the commands. Paul writes in Romans 13, Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. He writes in Galatians 5, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love one another as yourself. And so how is it fulfilled in love? How are all these commandments fulfilled in love? Maybe a case study will help. There's a case study that shows up in the Gospels. It's in three out of the four Gospels. It's this quick encounter between Jesus and a wealthy young man. But it's so revealing that it it, it takes a prominent place in the Gospels. And so the story goes that this young man comes up to Jesus. He's a, he's a you know, well-to-do, ambitious, likable guy. They call him a rich young ruler. I call him the college-educated young professional. And in the midst of a crowd, he comes up to Jesus. Now, this is a good person. I mean, he's not, he's not arrogant. He's, he's a law follower. I mean, he's the kind of person that we, we look to gather into our churches and we look to promote into leadership. This is a good guy. He comes from the right family. He's got the right degrees. And he comes up to Jesus and he, and he falls on his knees and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's a little dramatic falling on the knees in front of the big crowd and so Jesus sort of pauses for a moment. He's, you know, he's not impressed. The, you know, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so he simply responds with 
the community commandments. He says, what does the law say? Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. He responds with commandments five through 10. Now the young man says, well, Jesus, from my youth, I have done all of these things. And Jesus is like, mm-hmm. Young man says, certainly there must be some extra thing I can do to gain eternal life. Now, clearly this guy is, is living on the surface of life. He is not in touch with his own heart. He, doesn't, he has not come to terms with the brokenness of his own heart. I mean, who could stand before Jesus and say that they've done the entire law? And so he says, is there anything else that I, you know, somebody as great as me, is there anything else I must do for eternal life? And so Jesus says, there's one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me with my disciples. He's saying, if you, if you get rid of everything you have and you come and you live with us, we, we do ministry together, we do everything together, we live out of this shared pot of resources, you can do that with us. You can come and you can walk with me in this little ragtag group of guys. You can come and be with us. Some of the commentator says that Jesus is literally inviting this man to become one of his disciples. And yet the young man, we don't see his response in the scriptures The text only says the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, this has always been a a hard moment for me because it's, it's so often that we see Jesus pursuing people, going after people, wanting to heal people, and yet he lets this young man just walk away. And so, yes, this is a a story about wealth and, and that's certainly at play. But there's another thing going on here about keeping the law. Because this man has kept the entire law. This is a good person. He's done all of the things he's been taught to do, but he's missing something. What this shows us is that keeping the law, it's not just about keeping the law. There's a type of of law keeping that keeps us moving away from Jesus. There's a type of law-keeping that can be done by sheer willpower from the flesh. And it's a type of law-keeping that does not end up in relationship with Christ. So what Christ is getting at is obviously a different kind of law-keeping. He's talking about radically reorienting our life around his way. See, the Ten Commandments aren't just meant to be kept like a yes-no question, did you do it or not? The Ten Commandments are meant to be embodied. They're meant to be treasured. They're meant to be lived. And so we can pause and ask, have we fully embraced the way of Jesus? Have we forsaken everything to walk with him? Have we joined his little ragtag group of disciples Do we value others above ourselves? And does our use of money and possessions reveal that as well? Have we so loved others as ourselves that it's lowered our own standard of living? Jesus is saying we have to experience an internal change in our souls if we are to keep the law in the way that he's inviting us to.
Keeping the law is not just about keeping the law. It's about valuing others above ourselves. That's the one thing that this rich young man could not do. He did not value people above himself. And so he couldn't part with his things. He couldn't part with his reputation. He couldn't be identified with Jesus' followers. And as a result, he lived at a distance. The law is fulfilled in love for others. And yet even still, this is not a burdensome demand, but a beautiful invitation. It's not a burdensome thing to fulfill the law of love for others, but rather it's what we were created to do. And the third thing is that the law's vision is for community flourishing. The law gives us a vision for the thriving and the flourishing, not just of individuals, but of entire communities. Psalm 1 says that living according to the law promotes human flourishing. And the word that the Old Testament typically uses, the Hebrew word is shalom. It's a word that means peace, wholeness, completeness. It's a word that speaks not only of the individual, but also of our relationships and of our community. It's a word that's talking about an integrated life, not a disconnected one. It's talking about a harmony between all of the parts of our lives and all of the people in the community. Shalom is about life as it was meant to be. And so the question to ask is, how do these laws promote this, this flourishing, this shalom? Because as I said, there's a type of law-keeping that does not promote this type of shalom. And that's not what Jesus is after. What has to take place is a new set of desires. Our, our loves, as we talked about last week, have to be reordered. There was an old Puritan named Thomas Chalmers who described the expulsive power of a new affection. And what he means by that phrase is that a new affection will expel or, or push aside or push out the old affection. So the only way to, to get over a, a, an old desire or an old habit that you're trying to get rid of, it's not by pushing it down, it's not by minimizing it, you have to replace it with something you view as better. It's like when a stronger atom displaces the weaker atom in a molecular reaction. Seven classes in College of Chemistry, and I'm still not sure I got that illustration right. But there has to be a displacement of one when the new comes. So what he's saying is that love for God, worshiping with our whole being, it changes our desires. It drives out the desire for self-promotion, for self-protection, for self-defense. And it replaces those desires with a desire for the good of others. Love for others replaces love for self. And this is how the commandments give us a vision, not just for individual, but also for community flourishing. One of my heroes, J.I. Packer, is a British gentleman, you know, proper Anglican. He wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, which is called creatively the Ten Commandments. And he says this, Suppose people began to say, by God's help, I will live the Ten Commandments every day from now on. I will set myself to honor God and obey him. I will take note of all that he says. I will be in church for worship each week. I will not commit adultery or indulge myself in lust. I will not steal nor leave the path of total honesty. I will not lie or cheat. I will not envy or covet. And he's saying, if you're doing these things from your heart, 
He says community life would be transformed and massive social problems would dissolve overnight. Suppose all churches and congregations were ablaze with zeal for God and for personal holiness and for social righteousness. Why, that would be revival. Revival is a divine visitation of communities and its moral force is unrivaled. When God quickens his church, the tremendous purging power that overflows transforms the moral tone of society in a way that nothing else can do. That we need revival is not open to doubt. That this should drive us to prayer cannot be doubted either. And so what Packer is saying is that when we commit ourselves to see the beauty of God, to have our life changed from the inside out, and then to actually do what the law calls us to do in all of its goodness, I believe three things will happen. First, we will be set free. We'll experience true freedom in the same way that the Israelites did, but we'll be free from our compulsions, free from fear of man, free from needing the approval of others. And then second, we'll become a blessing to others. We no longer need something from them, but rather we can serve and love them genuinely. Our security, our humility, our other-centeredness will bless them, and they'll be encouraged to live in the same way. And then third, we'll become a community of blessing. So we tend in our culture to overestimate what one person can do. And so all young people are told that they can change the world if they just do some thing or get some degree. We overestimate what an individual can do, but we underestimate what a community can do. We underestimate what a community of Jesus followers can do over the course of a lifetime if they're truly pursuing him with every fiber of their being. Shalom is unleashed. Community is transformed. People flock to the good news of Jesus. Now, only God can do all of this, but we can put ourselves in a place to receive this from him by the posture that we take through our worship, through our prayer, through doing all of the ordinary things of God, he reaches us with his extraordinary power. Now, last week we closed, as always, with the gospel turn, how this text is fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. It's my favorite part of the sermon, and not just because it means I've got three minutes before I get to sit down. But this week's gospel turn has a bonus to it. It's a gospel and presence turn. You know, gospel and presence, that's the theme of this series. We've been set free from sin and death, and yet we've been set free for the presence of God. We've been drawn out of an old way of life and drawn into the presence of God. And the gospel and presence turn this week is that the giving of the law at Mount Sinai is fulfilled not only at the cross, but also at Pentecost. This is something I hadn't seen until this week, and I love it. But in Acts 2, Jesus has been resurrected. He's given his disciples instructions, and he's returned back to heaven. And then the disciples are are gathered in a room trying to figure out what to do next. It says the doors are locked, the windows are closed. I mean, they've been given an impossible task to go out and make disciples of all nations. They've been given kind of confusing instructions like wait for something And meanwhile, their entire city is trying to find them and throw them in prison or kill them. And so they're in this room and they're praying and fasting and worshiping. And the text says that the power of God falls on them. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a personal way. For the first time in history, the Holy Spirit is poured into the life of the church, into the lives of individual believers. It's the moment we call Pentecost, and it's, it's a fulfillment of Mount Sinai. See, Israel came to Mount Sinai 50 days after offering their Passover lamb. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes 50 days after Jesus had been offered as the new Passover lamb. Both involved a violent shaking of wind at Sinai. It was an earthquake. In Acts 2, it was a rushing wind. Only now, it, it wasn't terrifying. It was, it was personal. It was inviting. At Sinai, God wrote the law on stone tablets. And in Acts 2, God writes the law on the hearts of his people. At Sinai, there is a terrifying fire and smoke. In Acts 2, there is tongues of fire resting on them in a personal and gentle way. At Sinai, God comes down on a mountain. And in Acts 2, God comes down into a living room. At Sinai, we're confronted by God's power. But in Acts 2, we're filled with God's power. Now, what all of this is showing us, in short, is that the law of Moses is fulfilled. It's displaced by the Spirit of Jesus. It's not abolished, but rather it's fulfilled in the Spirit of Jesus coming and filling our hearts to do what the law could not do on its own. Nobody has kept the law perfectly, and so Jesus came and did it for us. We deserved death, and yet Jesus gives us his very own life. But it's not only that. But God fills us with his very own presence and welcomes us into his very own family. Let's pray.